If you would turn to Acts chapter 7 today. Happy July 4th to all of you. Obviously, we celebrate our nation's founding uh, this weekend, especially tomorrow. It truly is intended to be a celebration of freedom. And yet, one of the things that is really plaguing our nation right now is um, lies that people are embracing. And the interesting thing about the issue of freedom is that freedom is very much connected to the truth. I mean, the Lord Jesus says, the truth will make you free. And it's interesting to me as I look at what's happening in our country, and I realize that there are all kinds of lies being perpetuated in various ways, that it's not resulting in greater freedom, it's resulting in greater bondage. And it's actually resulting in people um, not seeing the freedom that we have and appreciating the freedom that we have. Um, Obviously, this weekend, there are those who are tweeting things and saying things that are basically saying that they can't celebrate our country this weekend because of the recent abortion ruling. Uh, Others would probably tie it to things like the 1619 Project, which argue or which argues that this country was founded on slavery and the whole Revolutionary War was about slavery and trying to preserve slavery and things like that, that it wasn't about freedom, it was about slavery. And so in our country, we uh, are at a time when the truth is really important because lies are ruining our nation in so many ways. I was listening to... um, someone asked uh, a question of John MacArthur and that he was asking about, how do I relate to people at work that want me to use certain personal pronouns? And his bottom line was, whether you um, do this in every case or not, or whether you need to build a relationship with them or not, uh, ultimately what people need is the truth. They need the truth about the situation. They need the truth truth about gender and how God has created men, male and female. They need the truth about salvation through Jesus. They they need the truth is what's going to set them free. Uh, Just affirming the lie doesn't set anyone free. And so we live in a time where truth is very, very uh, important Interestingly enough, one of our founding fathers in this country, John Adams, the second president, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Well, when he talks about um, moral and religious, he's connecting our Constitution and the, the fleshing out of that in our society to the truth, that it's an issue of whether or not we believe the truth that God has revealed. And so as we go through Acts chapter 7 this morning, I hope we'll be reminded of the importance of the truth because uh, Acts 7 is uh, an account of Stephen who at the end of Acts chapter 7 is martyred, the first Christian martyr um, that we see. And he is compelled to speak the truth to people he knows aren't going to naturally receive it. And yet he knows that the most important thing he can do is to tell them the truth. And for him, it resulted in death. They did not receive the truth. And so simply because we speak the truth in love, it doesn't mean it will be received 
as truth or as love. And yet God still calls us to speak the truth in love. And so what I'd like to do is kind of just work our way through this chapter. It's a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing at this point, but I'm just going to take it section by section because ultimately um, God puts everything in the Bible for a reason. And he puts stories and he puts truth in there that we need, that you and I need, that we need for this time in our country, that we, we need for whatever we're going through in our lives. Uh, we need what is here because God has given it to us. And what he reveals to us is meant to help us to trust in the ways we need to trust. It's meant to help us to love in the ways we need to love. And so I'd encourage you to pray that God would help you to see how this applies to you. Uh, in the ways that you need to trust God and love, especially when it comes to unbelievers in your life. Because Stephen is going to be talking to unbelievers, and he's going to be speaking the truth in love. And he's going to be seeking to honor Christ, to honor God, but also to meet the deepest needs of their heart. And we need to think about how he does that and see how it applies in our own desire to love those in our lives that do not know Christ. And so um, you might recall that in Acts chapter 6, the church sets aside seven men to oversee the ministry to the widows. And one of those men is Stephen. Stephen isn't simply uh, uh, an administrator of the widow ministry, but he's also empowered. He does miracles. And he preaches the truth in such a way that they can't even overcome his arguments. And so what they do is they come up with some people who will step forward and give false accusations, false testimony. So he's he's actually standing trial before the religious leaders, before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. And the high priest over the religious leaders is going to begin by asking the question, how do you... Uh, respond to these accusations. In verse 1, it says, The high priest said, Are these things so? And these things referred to, especially in verses 11 through 14, where it says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And so uh, Stephen is having to deal with false accusations. Uh, There's some truth in what they're saying. Because when it talks about the idea that Jesus is going to destroy this place, Uh, he was going to destroy that place. He was going to destroy the temple um, because of the total uh, rejection of him that uh, for the most part the uh, Israelites had made. And And he was going to change some things. The old covenant was coming to an end and the new covenant was being established. So there was some truth and what they were accusing him of, but they had twisted it to the point of saying, and because of these things, he should die. And so Stephen is ha- having to deal with these accusations and to address the, the issue of, has he blasphemed God? 
has he in some sense spoken against Moses and spoken against the law and spoken against the temple? And as you read through Acts chapter 7, he's um, speaking against all, all of that. He's saying, no, I haven't spoken against God. I haven't spoken against Moses and the law and the temple. Actually, he's going to argue by implication that you are the ones who have spoken against God and spoken against Moses, spoken against the law, and spoken against the temple. The interesting thing about this is, you recall that it makes it very clear in the Gospels that Jesus did not defend himself. And he did it for the sake of love. In this case, Stephen does defend himself. And he does it for the sake of love. The issue is love. Jesus was not trying to get out of his death because his death was the greatest act of love that ever happened. Stephen, though, knows that he's being falsely accused and what they need is not for him to die. What they need is to hear the truth. And so he defends himself. It's interesting, Jonathan Edwards is one of the greatest preachers, greatest theologians that this country has ever produced and he was fired from his job, uh, from his church. And there were accusations made against him, and he chose not to defend himself. And I believe he did that for the sake of love. And God actually gave him a season where he went as a missionary to the Indians and did some of his most important writing during that time. And so the issue isn't whether I defend myself or not. The issue is what is the loving thing to do. Sometimes it's the loving thing to do to defend ourselves. Sometimes the loving thing to do is not to defend ourselves. The issue is always what is love uh, in this situation. And so um, for all of us, we're called in one way or the other to make a defense. You recall in First Peter 3, uh, Peter says... Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so all of us, in a sense, are called to be like Stephen. We're called to be ready to give a defense, especially of our faith in Christ, especially to tell people why that we are willing to die for the name of Christ, why we are entrusting ourselves to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, why we're entrusting ourselves to Jesus to rescue us from hell and to enable us to enjoy heaven. Why do we believe Jesus is God and that ultimately he will be the one who reconciles us to God? We're to defend ourselves when that is on the line, when the question is, why would you ever trust yourself to this man who was crucified 2,000 years ago, crucified as a rebel, crucified as a blasphemer, Why would you trust yourself to him? And that's what Stephen's doing. He's telling them why he would trust himself to someone who was crucified because from their perspective, to be crucified was to be cursed by God. So how can you believe this man is going to get you to God if he was cursed by God? 
And so we have to have an explanation. We have to have a reasoned defense. And that's what Stephen does here. He talks about why he would trust himself to someone who was executed for being supposedly worthy of being executed. Well, he starts in verses 2 through 5 with the promise that God made to Abraham. So in verse 2 it says, um, And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. The interesting thing is that um, he goes back to Abraham because they would all um, want to take everything back to Abraham. He's giving them an, a, a history lesson. He reminds them of Abraham. They took pride in Abraham. They talk, took pride in being descendants of Abraham. So he goes back and he says, Remember, God promised Abraham this land that you're living in. And yet, Abraham had to leave his own country, had to go to this foreign land. And while he lived, he received no inheritance. And for a long time, he didn't even have a child. Even though God said, you will inherit this land and you will pass it on to your descendants. And so basically he's saying, Abraham had to take God at his word. Even when the circumstances appeared, to, con- to contradict that. How does that relate to the gospel? <laughs> well, God says, Jesus is my son, and he proclaims forgiveness in Jesus, and yet the circumstances, the cross, seem to contradict that. How could Jesus be the son of God? How could God offer forgiveness on the basis of Jesus if He died as a criminal. He died as someone cursed of God. And so basically, everything Stephen does here is meant to undermine, not directly, but by implication, all the assumptions, wrong assumptions that they have. And so the reality is for all of us that many times our circumstances will not seem to communicate God loves me and accepts me and rejoices over me. And what God is doing is he's saying, take me at my word. I tell you in my word that you're accepted. I tell you in my word that you are loved. I tell you in my word that I rejoice over you, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trust my word. It's kind of like that footprints poem that we're all familiar with. Two sets of footprints and then one set of footprints. And the guy says, why'd you leave me in the worst times of my life? And at the end it says, I didn't leave you. I was carrying you. Circumstances might appear that God has left us, but God says, trust my word. I promise you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so uh, Stephen here is starting out by saying, remember the promise of God to Abraham and how the circumstances didn't seem to fit the promises. Well, there are circumstances around Jesus that you think do not fit 
the promises, but they do if you look hard enough and if you see what God did in Jesus. And so he goes from there to talk about um, Joseph. So he moves from Abraham to Joseph. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, God promised wonderful promises. And the interesting thing is that in the Old Testament, we read God promising um, blessing through Abraham, uh, a land uh, to Abraham and his descendants. In the New Testament, Paul says in Romans that God promised the world to Abraham. It says in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So that the ultimate promise of God to Abraham was not simply a little piece of land in the Middle East. It was the whole world. And Peter says it's not the whole fallen world, but it's going to be a new world. That's why it says in 2 Peter 3, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not sin and suffering, but righteousness and joy and peace. So as C.S. Lewis can say, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's what God promised Abraham was another world, a new world. He promised him the world, but a new world in which righteousness dwells. He promised him everything that he could ever desire, ever need. And yet he promised it through the seed of Abraham, which in one sense refers to the whole nation, the descendants. But in another sense, Paul says seed referring to one, speaking of Jesus. And so the promise that Stephen is referring to here is the promise of everything that our heart longs for. And he's going to move into talking about the history of Israel and how God works to bring about everything our heart longs for. Because we tend to think that it's going to happen in in a much easier, simpler way, much more obvious way, when it looks very different. So, in verse 6 it says, But God spoke to this effect after he had promised all this to Abraham, that his, Abraham's descendants, would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I, God says, myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. 
And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and her fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And so God makes this promise, this great and wonderful promise to Abraham. Abraham has um, a son and Isaac who has another son, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is Joseph. And Joseph begins having these dreams, and he talks about how one day you guys are going to be bowing at my feet. And they're jealous of Joseph, and they sell him into slavery. And he's taken to Egypt, and he becomes the slave of Potiphar, and everything plays out from there. So he's a slave, and it says that God was with him. He goes from being the favored son with a coat of many many colors to being a slave in Egypt, far away from his family. He goes from saying, you guys are going to bow at my feet one day, to actually bowing at the feet of others and, and caring for them. But the Bible says God was with him in those negative, hard circumstances. And God rescued him from all his afflictions. He was humiliated. There's no doubt that for Joseph as a sinner, he was kind of proud. God humbled him. But even through his humbling and humiliation, then God exalted him. He became the ruler of Egypt for all practical intents and purposes. Second in command to Pharaoh. And God used him to actually bring the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt and to, uh, in a sense, um, rescue them from, well, not bring them out of Egypt, but um, to uh, provide for them. Out of Egypt is coming next. But it helped provide for them that they would survive um, and be brought into Egypt through that whole process. And so Joseph, who, was hum- who went through humiliation, then was exalted, and he was used to provide for God's people. That's the point. Um, just very quickly, in terms of application, our sufferings are not necessarily an indication of God's displeasure and distance from us. Joseph was distant from his family, but he was not distant from God. God was with him in all of those sufferings. And his suffering wasn't uh, God's displeasure with him. It was part of God's work to actually bless him and bless his family as well. And ultimately, Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Because it says in Philippians chapter 2, it says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, just like Joseph was. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. So what is Stephen saying? Stephen is saying, we in our history have evidence of God working by a process of humiliation and exaltation. A person that he uses to bring blessing on his people uh, goes through a process of being humiliated, 
but then he's exalted. And what he's saying is, you guys are rejecting the message of Jesus because of his humiliation. As if God doesn't ever bring people through a process of humiliation and then exaltation. Well, he goes on beyond that to uh, argue that in a similar way, the one that they most exalted in their hearts and minds was Moses. And he says, you need to remember what God did in Moses' life along these same lines. And so in verse 17, he starts to talk about how God worked to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, not only through Joseph, but also through the experience of Moses. So in verse 17, it says, but as the time of the promise, speaking of God's promise to Abraham, was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you're you're brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. What the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, for this 
Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Basically, Joseph is saying, you're not learning from your own history. Your own history ought to prepare you for what has happened with Jesus. And so God makes a promise to Abraham about a land. And then the outworking of that is uh, Joseph goes to Egypt. Joseph becomes second in command. And then God brings the rest of uh, the descendants of Abraham into Egypt for 400 years. And they become slaves. And so this is all part of God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He enslaves his people in Egypt. But he provides for them in Egypt through Joseph, who was humiliated in a sense and then exalted. And then he's going to take his people out of Egypt and he sends Moses. And the interesting thing is, in the story, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. And uh, then he goes out one day to visit the Israelites and he sees an Egyptian uh, abusing an Israelite and he kills the Egyptian. And he goes back the next day and he sees two Israelites fighting and, and he tries to break it up. And they say, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And he runs off and he's gone for 40 years. 40 years. It's a long time. And God comes to him, appears in a burning, to him in a burning bush and tells him to go back to Egypt. And it says in verse 35, This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be, both a ruler and a deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So he was rejected, humiliated in a sense. It says earlier in verse 25, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Stephen is saying, God is granting uh, deliverance to you through Jesus, but you do not understand that he is the deliverer. Just like in the history of Israel, they did not understand that Moses was the deliverer that God was going to send. So he's making the connection, not only between Joseph and Jesus, but also between Moses and Jesus. And he goes on to say, don't you remember? In verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Now, obviously, a prophet like him would imply that he would have authority that he would work miracles, which Jesus did, and that he would proclaim God's word with authority like he did. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard this, but I say to you. He speaks with authority. But he's also saying, Stephen is also saying, don't you realize that just like this Moses was not understood and rejected, but was the deliverer? Jesus too was not understood, was rejected, but he truly is the deliverer that God has sent. The reality is uh, we're not um, different than the people in 
first century Jerusalem. We're not different from these people listening to Stephen. We're not different from the Israelites who didn't understand what was going on. So many times we don't understand when God is sending us deliverance through people and circumstances because we reject certain people and we reject certain circumstances. I don't like this circumstance when that circumstance could very well be just the answer to your prayer. It's like the funny story we've all uh, heard about. Uh, There's different versions of the story. One version is a a pastor who is at this church in the middle of this rainstorm and the flood begins to rise and he begins praying for God to deliver him. And as the story goes, uh, the floods keep rising and a guy in a canoe comes by and says, come on, jump in, pastor. He says, oh no, God's going to deliver me. Later on, the floods waters get higher and a, and, a, and a guy in a motorboat comes by and, uh, come on, jump in, pastor. Oh no, no, God's going to deliver me. And finally, he's hanging on to the steeple of the church and a helicopter comes by, grab on the ladder, pastor. He says, oh no, God's going to deliver me. And finally, he drowns in the flood and he appears before God and he said, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? And God replies, what do you mean? I answered your prayer. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. The point is, he rejected the help that was offered. He rejected the, the deliverance that was given by God. And that's exactly what the Israelites did with regard to Moses. Not only did they reject him at the beginning of you know, when he killed the Egyptian, but they also, uh, Stephen says, rejected him even after they got out of Egypt. It says they were disobedient to Moses. They did not truly uh, listen to him and follow him. They rejected him. And so Stephen is saying, we need to learn from the word of God. We need to learn from our own history. The last thing he does, and this is all of it's connected to the accusations. They accused him of blaspheming God and Moses and the law. He says, you know, Moses gave the law and these are living oracles, meaning they're, they're oracles that are for life. And if you'd listen to them, you would actually receive Jesus, not reject Jesus. The last thing he highlights is they think they're being devoted to the temple by their desire to accuse him of blasphemy and ultimately to kill him. And he's going to accuse them of basically not being devoted to the temple and not certainly being devoted to the true temple of God. So in verse 42, it says, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua, upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, 
Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now, there's a lot going on in these verses with regard to the issue of was Israel really worshiping God or not? On the one hand, Stephen brings up the tabernacle in the wilderness. Then he talks about the temple that Solomon built. But he connects it all to the idea that even when the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, or about 40 years, they still were not really worshiping God. They were worshiping these other idols. Even though they had the tabernacle, which was a manifestation of God's presence, then they had the temple, which was another place where God manifested his presence, but they really weren't worshiping God. Well, the Bible says that in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there means tabernacled. So ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple, the ultimate dwelling place of God. And so God shows up in the person of Jesus and they reject him just like they rejected the tabernacle, the manifest presence of God in the wilderness, just like they rejected the temple in terms of it being truly the manifest presence of God and worshiped other things. They didn't worship the true God. Then Jesus shows up and says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that's what actually happened. He died, and then he rose again after three days, and they still reject the manifestation of God's presence. They think they're championing the temple, preserving the temple of God, and somehow expressing devotion to God. And yet Stephen is saying, the very things you're accusing me of, you are guilty of. You're the one who's rejected God, and Moses, and the law, and the very manifestation of God's presence, the very temple of God in the person of Jesus. The thing about all of this is, um, it's so easy when you think about their devotion to the temple and the tabernacle, it's so easy for us to worship things and people instead of God. And I've mentioned before the, uh, the picture that C.S. Lewis uses of, of being in a shed, a dark shed, and seeing sunbeams come through the crack in the door, and all he can see is just the sunbeams uh, flickering in the sunlight, and then he lines his eyes up with the sunbeam. He can look through the crack above the door, can see leaves and branches uh, going back and forth, and then he can see 90 million miles away the sun. And that's a great illustration of the fact that as long as I look at you from the side, I might can see wonderful things about you, but what I need to do is I need to look through you back to the Creator. I could look at buildings, like the temple was a beautiful building, but it was never meant to be looked at from the side. It was meant to be looked through all the way back to God so that they could trace um, the good thing all the way back to the giver of that good thing. Otherwise, if all you do is see things from the side, you worship those things. You worship people. You worship buildings like the temple. You worship um, material things because you're not looking through them back to the one who gave them. And that's what 
these uh, Jewish religious leaders were doing, and that's what Stephen is saying. You've fixated on the temple, and you're actually worshiping the temple. You're not worshiping the God who is pictured in the temple and who actually showed up in person so that you would crucify the very manifestation of God in the flesh and still worship just the shadow. And that's what the temple is. And so what he does at this point is he gives them a merciful rebuke. If you look at verse 51, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. That phrase in verse 51 is interesting. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means that God speaks to unbelievers, even those who resist him to the end. How, How did the Israelites who did not believe resist the Holy Spirit? Well, in different ways. I mean, God showed up in a lot of different ways. He worked all kinds of miracles, uh, bringing water from the rock, uh, giving them bread from heaven. Uh, he prodded all kinds of things. And then when Jesus showed up, he worked all kinds of miracles. And that was a testimony of the Holy Spirit in very tangible, visible ways. And the Bible says that God speaks to us through creation. When we look at the stars, we look at the sun, when we look at beautiful flowers, when we look at people, we see something of God. And so God is speaking, the Bible says, through creation. But especially he's speaking through his word, and that's why Stephen ties the resisting of the Holy Spirit to the prophets, the ministry of the prophets. When he says, you're doing just like your fathers did, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And so obviously the clearest um, way in which the Holy Spirit works in people's lives and, the, and the, um, the way that the truth is most clearly communicated is through the Word of God being spoken. As people hear the preaching of the Word, they hear the reading of the Word, or they read it themselves, uh, that is the Holy Spirit speaking. And so even if we don't see it as the Holy Spirit speaking, we don't hear it as the Holy Spirit speaking, Stephen is saying, it's the Holy Spirit who is speaking through the word of God as it's read, as it's preached. And the question is, am I resisting the Holy Spirit? If I'm resisting the word of God, then I'm resisting the Holy Spirit. And that's what he says they were doing. And obviously, at this point, he's highlighting the fact that the thing that they're resisting is the gospel. They're resisting the good news of a savior for their sin. And he's rebuking them for their stubbornness, the refusal to receive mercy. Now, it's interesting that obviously we might think, well, he's speaking kind of harshly, right? Can that be loving? Well, it depends on whether or not that's what someone needs, right? Like I said earlier, 
Uh, sometimes we're to, d- to defend ourselves and sometimes we're not. It's all about the, s- the issue of the sake of love. What does a person need? Um, does a person need strong and direct language? Does it mean you be unkind? Does it mean you're to be mean? Does it mean that you're to do it out of anger and wanting to hurt them? But he uses strong and direct language to say, let me tell you exactly what is happening here. Let me tell you the truth of the situation. That's what he's doing. He's not being mean. He's not trying to um, just hurt them with his words. He's being direct by saying, you guys keep pushing back. You keep pushing back. You keep rejecting the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you that that's what you're doing. You are rejecting the mercy that you need. And so he speaks directly to them, clearly to them, because he really loves them. And so we need to realize that that's how we might need to speak sometimes too, is very directly, depending on the situation. How do I know that he loved them? Look at the last part of the chapter. It says in verse 54, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. When he says his last words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, that makes it very clear that even his stern rebuke was out of a a heart of love, a desire for God's mercy upon their lives because he actually prays that God would have mercy on them. So I don't believe there's a contrast there. I don't believe uh, there's a difference between the two. His words directly to them and his prayer reflect a heart of mercy, wanting God to have mercy on them. The reality is, in this life, God calls us always to show mercy. He tells us that it's not our job to exercise justice on people, even if they're stoning us. You would think if there was any time you could say, God, get them, it'd be after you've shared the gospel with them and they're stoning you. It's not what he does. That's why it says in Romans 12, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Do not wish God's worst upon them goes on to say, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. It says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Stephen was not overcome by evil. The evil they did against him did not result in him doing evil to them or wishing evil upon them. Instead, The evil they did to him was overcome with good. He spoke out of love, even if it was direct, and he prayed out of love for for God's mercy on them. 
even as they were stoning him, even as he was dying. And he calls us to do the same thing. Even in a culture where Christianity is more and more under attack in various ways, that does not mean we should be less loving and less merciful and less prayerful that God would have mercy. It does not mean we should start cursing our nation, but we should pray for God's blessing. We should speak blessing on people. So let me just kind of wrap up here. Um, What Stephen does is he gives them a history lesson. And he says, you need to be careful of rewriting history. You need to really think about the history that you have and see that what God did in Jesus in bringing him to a, a place of humiliation and then exaltation is not something new. God has worked that way in history. And the reality is for you and me, he continues to work that way. He brings us through suffering and humiliation that he might exalt us. He does that in the life of Christ. He does that in the life of Christ's people. And so we have to be careful of rewriting history in different ways. Obviously, I mentioned the 1619 Project, which is uh, by those who understand the founding of our nation the best. They would say the best scholars in this area were never consulted for the 1619 Project. And they would say it's a terrible rewriting of history to say that our nation was simply born out of a desire to preserve slavery and not out of a desire for freedom. And so Stephen is arguing, be careful of rewriting history and not really seeing it for what it is. We can rewrite our own history by saying, ah, I'm not that bad. I've never thought things that were that bad or said things that were that bad or done things that were that bad. That's really a rewriting of history because the reality is Jesus would say, um, if you get angry and say mean words to someone, you've broken the command to not murder and you deserve hell. That's a true understanding of history. My history, your history. We desperately need a savior. The good news is, is we have one. Um, who came to free us from our guilt and free us from our sin and enable us to enjoy God. As I said, uh, the principle of humiliation and exaltation is what Stephen is highlighting, that if we don't understand that that's how God works, we won't understand the story of Jesus and we won't understand our own story as Christians. We're called to follow Jesus by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, which means... Don't be surprised if you suffer. Don't be surprised if you're, in some sense, brought through a process of humiliation. It's all part of being exalted. It's all part of God's plan to keep his promises to you, just like he kept his promises uh, to Israel. Churchill is one of those interesting fellows in history where he was originally rejected, and yet during the crucial time of World War II was elevated to replace uh, Neville Chamberlain and led England to victory in World War II. And then right after the war, he was defeated again. So you can see in his life uh, how there was humiliation and exaltation for the purpose of God enabling England to do what England needed to do at that point. Well, let me just wrap it up by this. This last thing is ultimately there's a sense in which God 
um, calls us to do the impossible as his people. Uh, the book of Acts is a history of the spread of the gospel, and it reminds us that God has called all of us to be a part of what he's doing to save sinners. When I was growing up, there was a TV show called Mission Impossible. And I remember watching that show. It was about these uh, government ag- agents that were at work to foil various nefarious plans across the globe. And their team was actually called the Impossible Missions Force. The Impossible Missions Force. It's interesting because um, it reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 when the rich young ruler um, is told to sell everything and follow Jesus and he basically says no way and walks away. And Jesus says how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And the disciples say, well, then I assume nobody can be saved based on that. And Jesus says, with people, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Why would Stephen even mercifully rebuke these religious leaders? Why not just write them off and not say anything to them? Because even though from his perspective on his human level, he knew he could not change their hearts, He knew that they were resisting the Holy Spirit. But he also knew God could do the impossible. And actually it says that they laid their feet, or their robes, at the feet of a man named Saul, who we will later on see is the Apostle Paul, who God radically transformed his life. So there may be people in your life that you think, that's, that's mission impossible for me to speak into their lives in a loving way and see anything change because they just seem to be so resistant. Well, with you it is impossible. With me it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so we just keep praying for wisdom and grace to speak the truth in love and And so that's why at the end of your notes, I'm just encouraging you to make sure you're praying for the lost people in your life, just like Stephen prayed. Uh, Let me encourage you to make sure that you have relationships with lost people, that you're not just separating yourself from lost people, but that you're leaning in, not leaning away. Make sure you're seeking to meet the needs of lost people in very practical ways. The Lord Jesus served lost people, healed and did various things. Make sure you're using um, the obvious public ways you can share your faith. You can do that just like I'm doing it. I mean, preachers preach, that's a public forum. Um, Social media, there may be other public ways you can share your faith. And then finally, um, all of us are gifted differently. Not all of us are gifted like Stephen to work miracles and to be uh, bold, Uh, street preachers of some sort. But that doesn't mean we're not gifted at all. We can use our gifts and our talents and the opportunities that God gives us to make a difference in the lives of lost people. So I would encourage you to not um, get so caught up in what's going on that you forget that we have a role to play in our country. Um, Don't forget that... um, 
in Paul's day and in the time that we're reading about here, the Roman Empire was not Christian. The Roman Empire um, looked more like what we see our nation moving toward. But God is able to transform not only people but cultures. And he can even transform this culture again if he sees fit. But it's not through politics. It's going to be through life transformation, through the preaching of the gospel, people being changed in their hearts. Because our Constitution requires a moral and religious people, a people that have been transformed to the truth of the gospel. That's what our country needs. That's what we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that it it truly is the reality that the truth will set us free. If we see the truth about ourselves and our need for Jesus, if we see the truth about Jesus, that even though he was crucified as a criminal, he wasn't a criminal. He was the righteous one. And that he died in the place of sinners, died in our place. Father, as we see those things and we embrace those things as true, we can be set free. We can be set free from our guilt. We can be set free to have fellowship with you. We can be set free to enjoy the new world in which righteousness dwells that you've promised. Father, I pray for every single person here this morning that they would trust you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and their Savior, and that they would know the freedom that only you can bring. And for those of us who have already trusted you, we pray that you would remind us of what's true, that you remind us of what you've promised us, and that our hearts would rejoice in all that you've promised us, and that you would use us to make a difference in the lives of those who still need to see who still need to find the forgiveness of their sins, who still need to have a hope of heaven. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to see how this uh, chapter and Stephen's testimony and his experience relates to us and how we're to lay down our lives so that others might find the mercy that is offered to them in Jesus. Father, please prepare our hearts now to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that honors you. We just thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.